Hello and welcome to the 33rd episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Monday the 9th of December 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. Today we continue with Chapter 9, Republican Democracy. Talk about the ills of bureaucratic centralism. This week I have the new patrons Werner Fresvig, Shane Kaleli, and Evan Thome to thank. If you would like to help keep the Good Ship Alpha afloat and keep the episodes flowing, why not join the Patreon gang gang? From $5 a month or $1 an episode, you get access to the special patron-only bonus episodes, the right to vote on the reading group series, and other cool stuff too. If you don't have any spare dough, I'm always looking for people to help with editing or producing the show. Hit me up on Twitter or Facebook if you're interested. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. Okay, to the discussion. Now, Puya, let's do some common turnism. <laughs> okay, okay. the primary inheritors in today's politics of ideas of the ideas of the early common turn are the Trotskyist and ex-Trotskyist organizations. To a lesser extent, the same is true of Mao's groups. Although, since the right turn of the Beijing in 1980s, these have become a smaller and less influential. Both sets of ideas have had a wider influence in diluted form through ex-member independents who have got fed up with the organizations but have not made a systematic critique of their politics. The main burden of Chapter 4-8 to has been to try to separate out those elements in the ideas of a common turn which are rational responses to strategic problems from those which are blind alleys that lend support to the refusal of the organized groups and independents alike to unite effectively. This was particularly relevant to defeatism, the party of a new type, and to the general staff of the World Revolution. The reverse of a coin, in the case of the Trotskyist groups and independents, in the use of the United Front and workers' government slogans to justify diplomatic deals with elements of the official, i.e. coalitionist and nationalist left, these almost inevitably involve non-sectarian sectarianism, i.e. sectarianism to the left and opportunism to the right. This, the phenomenon can be seen in full flower with the SWP. It also informs the LCR majority's use of United Front policy to evade the problem of disunity between the League and the Lutte Ouvrière. The struggle for a united and effective left in the workers' movement has therefore unavoidably involves a struggle for the de- definite break with the errors of the early Comintern that have been inherited by the Trotskyists and with the Trotskyists' own errors in interpreting the Comintern materials. In several countries, partial gains have been made by the left unity. Partial willingness to break with bureaucratic centralism has been key to both the unity and the gains. In England, the U.S., France, and Argentina, this has been absent with, and no progress has been made. In Argentina, in spite of the conditions of the acute crisis in 2001. At present, however, it seems depressingly likely that the continued coalitionism of the former official communists and the Maoist and Trotskyist diplomatic version of the United Front will result in these gains coming to nothing. The fate of a Brazilian Workers' Party seems a clear example. If this depressing vista comes true, the Trotskyist sects will no doubt say, there you go, told you so. But as the failure of a sex in England, the US, France, and Argentina shows, the truth will be that there has been an insufficiently critical break with the inheritance of the early commentary. I found this interesting here. This paragraph here where he talks about what do Trotskyist groups end up doing 
he says here that in, in the case of both Trotskyist groups and independents, it's the use of United Front and worker government slogans to justify diplomatic deals with elements of the official, i.e. coalitionist and nationalist left. These almost invariably involve non-sectarian sectarianism, i.e. sectarianism to their left and opportunism to their right. That's got to be, I think that's very true. When they go into these kind of coalition kind of stuff, don't they end up, United Fronts, they end up basically censoring their own radical leftness so that they can fit into these right United Fronts. I, I, I guess, yeah, like that's true. But then also like, like because of the fact that they haven't been sufficiently critical about their common term heritage, I also kind of like, write them off like my my point of view is not that oh if they were not censoring their left-wing point of view uh they would be effective because i don't think they would be effective in any case because of this this commenter and heritage that that mcnair points to like i think that democratic centralism in that like leninist form is just going to be the death of them one way or the other doesn't matter if they fight with their coalitionist partners I had a question about the last paragraph in this section. Um, it says, at present, however, it seems depressingly likely that the continued coalition of the former official communists and Maoists and the Trotskyist diplomatic version of the United Front will result in these gains coming to nothing. The fate of the Brazilian Workers' Party seems a clear example. If this depressing visit comes true, the Trotskyist sects will no doubt say, there, told you so. That there told you so. Like, what the... Isn't he critic like I, I? I'm just kind of confused about that line. I think, I think this is the the sort of like sectarianism, right? That it's like, oh well, they weren't the ones in that position, so they're going to say they're told you so because you know you weren't sufficiently pure or whatever. So basically, it's like one one Trotsky sect finger wagging at the other who did more of a coalitionist united front thing, right? Yeah, I, I don't think the Workers Party was exactly Trotskyist, but yes, there's there was an influence there, yeah. In this section, he, you know, says that partial willingness to break with bureaucratic centralism has been key to both unity and the gains. And while later yeah. he says positions on the Soviet Union don't matter, elsewhere in the chapter he says people that have a bureaucratic centralist party will set up a bureaucratic centralist regime. There's just a painful inconsistency. It just sticks out at me like a sore thumb. I mean, your theory of, you know what the Soviet Union is and how it relates to what you'd like to build. I think he was saying that your your theory in the Soviet Union doesn't matter in the context of like Soviet defensism. Because if I remember that line correctly, he's talking specifically about that. And he, he says like, that's a matter of Marxist theory, which is all fine and good, but it's a matter of strategy. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. So it's meaningless. I, I think I don't. You think he's being insincere? Well, no, I just think there's something like underrepresented, like there's another break that we need to make, essentially, that he doesn't argue for as passionately as he does, as he argues for the break with the loyalists, which makes sense because, you know, we're, I guess, dealing with a ghost, but that I think is important, ultimately. Dismissing it, dismissing it too much, but the most of the left does not dismiss it as and, much as he's dismissing it. Well, and, and even even on paper, like, he agrees it's important to not be seen as this but it definitely has an impact on theory even if it theor i don't know you could disentangle the things but in in practice you know people's theory of that society does have something to do with what they want a party that advocates 
this kind of thing and organizes on these kind of lines, their theories of organization in his mind have an impact on the kind of party state that they produce. It's just something maybe, I, I keep tripping on. When, now that I now that I see it, I can't unsee it. Well, maybe this is a failure of him to not include like a like you have to have another axis to really like get at that because like if we're breaking more clearly with Leninism and if we're doing that like you know capital L Leninism isn't easily tractable on the left right center correct kind of scale and so there needs to be like if we're going to like break with something that isn't measurable by McNair's own scale the scale is flawed well the scale is it, it's not designed to highlight that difference you, you have Leninist positions on the left, you have Leninist positions in the center, and Leninist positions on the right. This isn't going to tell you about that. I mean, maybe that's kind of like hinting at his own, like, his overly willingness to be sympathetic with it, like pointing at that tradition that he has come from. Yeah, I mean, I guess you'd have to write a whole nother book with a whole nother set of positions to argue for this break or something. Sure. It's, it's not what he, it's not his ultimate point. When we say Leninist, what do we mean? Do we say, is it the break break from the right and democratic centralism? Is that what people mean no, by Leninism? No, that's not what I mean. What, <laughs> I, what, I, what I mean is like break with Stalinism and Stalin adjacent people. Like this would include Trotskyism as well, in essence, because Trotskyism kind of, re- it's, it's like the left, left-wing version of Stalinism with the forced collectivization and uh, that left-wing communist in the common turn is something that Stalin eventually ended up doing, right? So in the end, like all of Leninism kind of has that this at least i'm arguing extrapolating from your arguments that like it has like an authoritarian streak that can't be captured well on the right left right center left scale it is something that he's kind of getting at with the break from common turnism you know that yes, he, yes. he mentions here and i think that is close to what i'm saying but even you know trotskyists that claim to be very critical of the first four congresses, which McNair most resembles. And then even people like Amadeo Bordiga and his followers that are Leninists that believe that Lenin lost the way, you know, in the civil war, you know what I mean? They're breaking because of Bolshevization, you know? And so they're, they have a separate position from even the Trotskyists that kind of like actually fucking Bordigas. Then some of them do accept common turnism ultimately. I don't know what Leninism means if it's not common turnism or some kind of like Stalinism. I just don't, I think, you know. I think that's the understanding that we have developed in reading this book over this this whole this series of discussions and like getting to grips of like what we mean by Leninism and how that's connected to like uh, Zinoviev and all that kind of stuff. I, I, th- I think that that rings true to me. Maybe calling it common turnism instead of Leninism is is too obscuritan is is kind of the issue that we're we're like trying to deal with like it's not like really pointing out what the problem is because Lenin is still a popular figure on um, among communists and I don't think we should just like throw all your Lenin books away but like right you know what the ism of it is is and the man himself eventually is problematic and you have to just deal with that you know yes 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 absolutely yeah and, well, and is- so this insufficiently critical break is, you know, the question is how, how sufficiently critical can you be? Is McNair sufficiently critical to do the thing that he's saying that he wants to do? Okay, will we try one more section? I'm going to read some of these. Strategy. The strategic coordinates that I have positively argued for in the last eight chapters can be summarized as follows. 
One, there is no way forward from capitalism other than self-emancipation of the working class. The ideas of a peasant-led revolution or of a long-term strategic alliance of the proletariat and peasantry as equals, of advanced social democracy or of a broad democratic alliance have all been proved false. They have been proved false by the fate of the socialist countries and by the fact that the fall of the USSR combined with the decay of the US-led world economic order has led to increased attacks on the concessions that capital made to social democratic and left nationalist governments elsewhere in order to contain communism. The idea of the movement of movements has proved with extraordinary rapidity to lead nowhere. Two, the working class here means the whole social class dependent on the wage fund, including employed and unemployed, unwaged women, homemakers, youth and pensioners. It does not just mean the employed workers, still less the productive workers or the workers in industry. This class has the potential to lead society forward beyond capitalism because it is separated from the means of production and hence forced to cooperate and organise to defend its interests. This cooperation foreshadows the free cooperative appropriation of the means of production that is communism. Three, the self-emancipation of the working class requires the working class to lay its hands collectively on the means of production. This does not mean state ownership of the means of production, which is merely a legal form. Without democratic republicanism, the legal form of state ownership means private ownership by state bureaucrats. It means that the working class collectively decides how the means of production are used. Okay, let's stop it there. The working class is the whole whole social class. Anybody have any problems with that? No, let's move on. Is, <laughs> I think this is like a really interesting definition of the working class that I've not encountered yet. And really, uh, yeah, what? I don't know my it's Marx's no, definition. Yeah. yeah. No, but I think Marx's definition is kind of. He, I don't think he would include a lot of these people in, in um, the working class. I think he more, would. It is the, the the whole thing about like these people are not part of the working class is like a legacy of form of the workers' movement over the last hundred such years, and the way that they they represented themselves as Marxists. Marx's but, definition is consistent with this definition. I'm sure it is, but I think like this would lead to like a lot of people that we normally wouldn't consider being <laughs> workers that aren't listed here being workers, like students. Well, let's put it this way. I, I don't know. There was the classical workers movement going on at that time. And there is this category in Marx of the lumpen proletariat that he does tend to get away from, but... Every so often, he'll just go on a tirade about the social scum, like yeah. these these parasites. You know what I, I mean? I, like, I don't think so, he's calling children and pensioners parasites, Marx. And I don't no, think he's think, calling like but I, mothers. But, and, but I think no. you could include them. Like, I think you could include the lumpen in with this definition. You know, the, like the, a lot of lumpen are proletarian. Like, really, like, and that is their actual like class relation. If you're not. You know, if if you're not including like certain kinds of I don't know an analysis of legality, if you're not seeing if they're earning a wage on a proper market or the black market or what have you, like yeah, they're they're proles. Drug dealer. Yeah, I'm. Well, I mean, drug dealer. Like a a drug dealer is like a merchant, right? He's not. They they have a form of capital. 
Yeah, but like a homeless person, like on the street, they're right. still working that, class. That... What, well, this is this is a difference from the classical conception of the workers' movement. And Marx is maybe a bit inconsistent on this, but I think he improves as he gets older when he switches more to the kind of the analysis of surplus proletariat being the pole of surplus capital and that sort of thing. He he gets better about this, but yeah, like what Puya is saying is is I think should be deeply felt that the classic workers movement and in, including Marx to some degree, this is, you know, a pretty f- forward thinking definition that wasn't consistently applied very often in the history of uh, the workers movement. When it was, it was when the workers were the closest to revolution. I think we're going to get into this a lot more when we look at the 18th room era, where the lump in proletariat is, is given explanatory value in explaining what happened there. Right. The category of the lumpen proletariat is used as by Marx to explain the rise of Louis Napoleon, right? I'm just looking at my capital volume here, and I don't think pro- the word pro- the pro- word proletariat is not in the index. Yeah, not to mention lumpen proletariat. Well, it's actually capital, not in capital. Yeah, capital is the late work where he's improved, right? Yeah, like it, his yeah. middle political writings you know, from the Communist Manifesto to, to just after the Paris Commune, where he says, you know, the sex workers are you know, <laughs> the, these fucking parasites. They uh, they followed the smell of their johns, like hose mad that we abolish the state, you know, up through the 18th Brumaire. Like there is, you know, there's more of that stuff there than there is in capital. Capital is, is for all that dry, dead political economy language he takes on, he drastically improves on the moralism. Yeah. against the lumpen yes well yes. he also it's also for both the lumpen and like on you know what's often called in socialism all socialist theory the women's question marx the man is incredibly inconsistent both theoretically and personally like let's take sex work for example like he like dunked dunks on sex work you know in the uh, aftermath of the paris commune but then uh you know, in his earlier writings, The Holy Family, you know, he's talking about like a, a, a piece of literature and he says like the only person who's like a real human in the story is the sex worker. Well, let alone in the Communist Manifesto where he makes the broader parallels between uh, marriage and sex work. Right. And so sometimes like Marx is like woke AF on like women's issues in the lumpen and other time, not so much. And I honestly think he's better on uh, women's issues than he is on, on lumpen TBH. Like, you know, I'm a dirty punk girl. Like, I stand the lumpen, you know. But I, I also see, like, it's a super, like, under-theorized category. And same with uh, students. Like, I feel like students could be, like, many different classes, depending. Students are scum <laughs> now, let's be honest. I've just looked up their all volumes of capital. There is not one in the index. Proletarian <laughs> does not exist. Really? Well, well, I mean, maybe it's, proletariat it's doesn't exist in all three volumes. I mean, proletariat is probably used too often in capital to put in the index. Yeah, I'd be very surprised if it does not exist in. Capital. I'm telling you, I've been I've been doing a reading group of volume one. We're halfway through it, and I haven't seen the word proletarian yet. Damn. Uh, okay. Before we get into it, Puya just wants to say that he wishes he said the word probable here and somewhere. Right, come on, Puya, make your point. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, I don't, like, here he says, like, the peasant revolution, this stuff is falsified by this stuff. I, I don't think that holds, I don't think that holds water. And he kind of sounds okay. like, a, like a paparian or something. 
he has a different methodology here than he did before. He's basically making the point that these things have repeatedly failed. These alliances, idea of a peasant-led revolution or a strategic alliance with proletarian peasantry has always led back to capitalism. But Who you thinks that like... this should be talked about in a probabilistic way? <laughs> no, Am I correct? I think like no, no, because first of all, like this is why like the Popperian methodology. This is why it's this is why it's not good because you know you can never just like falsify a theory like based of on course, the, of course, of course, yeah. And but like I know, but it's like it's just talking in plain English to try and make a point. You know, I think we can't always go back to the same thing of like we have this argument every week where we go like you know even though it fails seven times doesn't necessarily mean it's false because it mightn't be it mightn't be a good sample essentially. So no, but like you know, you can't disprove it. And I also don't think that this is a very good argument, anyways, because it's like the the peasant led revolution caused the USSR. to collapse first of all i don't think it's like a good like it doesn't it doesn't show anything well essentially what you're saying is that like this kind of causation cannot be established no matter how many examples we have no then or, what are you or, saying? well i'm saying there's we're no all picking like, on Puya now here we're all picking i just like, really no no Leave i really want lexi like this could be due to Leave a third Puya variable alone. that's like okay this could be like this could be due to a third variable that he's like not addressing at all. And I think it's very likely that it is. And it's not due to like the idea of a peasant, you know, like, I don't it, think that's part yeah, of the USSR yeah. fell. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, you know, well, that's that, very well possible. It is possible, but like, are we not kind of historical materialists? Yeah. Like, I, I think like, the point that the, you're making it, is that historical materialists, you know, will sort of default to certain kinds of variables and that those are, you know, ballpark probably the basic explanatory factors and you know if, if we have a theoretical framework for historical materialism i mean I, like honestly like you know if you're a historical materialist this might be you know too concrete you know we might be too far up into the social and political or something along those lines i suppose but the the point being is that there's a certain there are certain like zones of agency this could very well be I see it as at least plausible that you know that this is a big reason why that you couldn't have communism is that you weren't just representing a bunch of proletarians like you you had to represent something else but again it could be a third variable it could be a sort of shared kaltskian you know leninist sort of statism or or something it could be something else you know the economy <laughs> when he says like peasant revolution Like, think about it. That implies a certain state of development. Like, if you had a peasant-led revolution today in America, it'd be 3% of the population. It couldn't possibly be a thing. So, like, when he's saying that, it's like a, it's like a, a placeholder for the idea of, of a developed economy. They're both are, it's the same thing. Right. If you have a developed capitalist economy, you won't have peasants. So, this, that's just yeah. kind of... But w what does he mean by this? Like, the idea of a peasant-led revolution... Is he saying that a peasant-led revolution is impossible? He's saying that a peasant-led communist revolution will descend into capitalism again. That's what he's he's saying. Is he not saying, look, of a long-term strategic alliance of the proletariat and peasantry as equals of advanced social democracy or of a broad democratic alliance, all these different ones, 
have proved false. It has to be taken as given that, like, he's speaking here from a communist perspective, because this is like about communist strategy, right? Yeah, and I think I think the point is well taken that perhaps you know if you're Tom, if you're a historical materialist, you know maybe you know it's really the level of productive forces or something, you know what I mean? Like, and that he's making the point and he's isolating. Well, really, what it is is that you know there's the there's the class composition that you end up with. And if you're trying to pull a revolution with a certain kind of class, um, you're going to run into these problems. This is the only class composition that's going to lead to a communist revolution. But uh, also, um, Lexi, you were said, does evidence that something is untrue in science, you know, there's like really good theories and they come up with like inconsistencies all the time. They're not falsified. Some of the best yeah. theories, like like even quantum mechanics, like, like we did high level astrophysics like we did simulations with molecules and we were like predicting uh some transition state in a reaction like they did that reaction and then the transition state wasn't there even though the quantum theory like predicted that it would be and then they made up this auxiliary hypothesis that was like oh like oh uh we're not detecting it because it's like not a rate limiting it's not rate limiting in the reaction like because this transition state is there for so so little time you know there's time like, measures yeah like but even though like so there's like these inconsistencies these empirical inconsistencies that happen with like the best theories all the time even though like the quantum theory predicted the the initial chemical the initial chemical and the final chemical perfectly good it also predicted a middle chemical like in the middle of reaction I don't know. It's it's possible that there's like like a form of scientific induction that's not really, you know, viable in social science. But it would make a lot of scientific socialism moot. Essentially, there wouldn't be a lot of reason to be doing this. It would be as absurd as counting angels on the head of a pen to try to you know infer from social phenomena. And Marxists, to a degree, are relying that you can't perfectly predict because otherwise. You know, all the forms that we've seen so far are all the forms that we can expect to see. You know, we shouldn't expect to see communism or statelessness or anything like that. So I, I hear your point and Marxists all have a touch of that. And, you know, McNair and I, and certainly, you know, people like uh, Tom and Kyle are, are <laughs> people that are like pushing back on this sort of total, I don't know, sort of nausea about establishing causality what am i doing i don't understand what i was doing there well like think about the postmodern left the post-structuralist left and their views on causality or even when somebody like david harvey looks at dialectics he thinks that there's no causal language like that the secret to dialectics is that there's is that causality has nothing to do with it right the mainstream norms of social science you know believe that you can establish some levels of causality in in some ways this is a break from the leftism that we've sort of inherited from Gen X. Being a student in the social sciences, that's definitely true. Like causality in psychology is incredibly overly empirical. Yeah, I'm the first to admit that, but that's, they do, it is pretty much a mainstream view in, in bourgeois social science, if you will. I just think that in these situations, Puya, you're dealing with such a system of such a high complexity that it's not so amenable to the type of 
experimentation that you're talking about in, say, the physical sciences. And what you kind of have to do when you're dealing with these systems is like you can theorize as well, but also you got to kind of look at what has happened and try to make Bayesian judgments on them. You know, well, it, and in, in your language, you may say, look, these have all been a failure. We need to try something new. You're not saying that <laughs> I'm not saying that my analysis is totally 100 percent right. But like you have to go on small samples. Ensembles. Yeah, you, you do. And you have to like try and, and, and piece together from that theoretical understanding. And you know what I mean? I don't think like... I look at the 20th century and you look at how we've gone through all these different analyses of all the stuff. Like, well, like none of the ones that have been tried have worked. And a lot of them have been tried many, many, many times. And the, the obvious flaws of them are plain for us to see. That's just the way I look at it from a kind of a, a practical historical approach. I don't know how amenable it is to like a Markov chain analysis. <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, I mean that seriously because I think it's because you don't know that predicting. If I was thinking about it, I was like, "How would you do this with a Markov chain?" And then I was like, "It's very difficult because from each mode of production, you have to, or like each relation of production, you'd have to predict what's the probability of going to all the other ones." Yeah, and then you don't understand. Like, you have to. How do you come up with that probability of transition? You have to pluck it out of your arse, right? And like. <laughs> No, well, I'm I mean, serious. I mean, not necessarily. I'm serious, though. I think in, I'm in, pretty in serious. Like paper, yeah. I mean, you know, you say this is 25%. Oh, yeah, bang, who? Yeah, great. Well, grand. Well, now we just know what happens if you plug in that 25%. Like, the thing I, I'm, I'm saying is, like, like maybe, right, you could get into, like, look at, look at what the ICCC, or is it the International Climate Change Panel do? IP, IC, IPCC? reports and, yeah and they build like world they build world models for all the different geological processes goddamn loads of them and they plug them all together and like they're constantly revising them i know a friend of mine uh works for uh the british meteorological office and like some of his papers were literally literally this stretch of coastline that's like five miles long and the way the coral is here and the coast and the water responds back that way. And what happens in that small, very specific area under different conditions? Like that's his PhD, for God's sake. You know, it's literally stuff like that. And, you know, are we going to build a model of world political stuff on the, on the scale of the IPCC? Like that's our real, that's kind of what you have to get to. And, and, and even when you do that, even when you do that, it's far from like a kind of a, a scientific thing oh. in the sense that you can run it and test it and know what it is because, you know, it's just it's just mind boggling. You, you can't get to that level of it. I just don't think it's a, a viable strategy for people, for socialists to build a world political model. Like, I just think it's because well, the complexity know, of a system is so high. Not just the complexity, like you can get it to predict maybe what will happen in a few days, yeah. But like, what will it tell you in ten years? And it doesn't it can't predict what the changing political formations will be. 
you know so it's 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 not a predictive model it's like a model to to cohere with what has happened in the past yeah. I, I you know like and maybe that will give you some understanding but maybe it won't because it's so bloody complex it's a function of what you're putting into it well i mean i think it's important to like if you're theorizing about like how it works it's important to take account of the empirical data that you have <laughs> like in the past what's happened in the past but right you know like but that's what he's doing here that's what mcnair's no, but, doing here but i mean and you're like, bombing him for it no i mean but like it shouldn't be like like it, it doesn't need to be like it needs to account for it but it doesn't need to like like it needs to have like a logical structure that is something other than the empirical stuff okay well yeah but i mean he he does that too right like he gives reasons in the other chapters for why a peasant revolution will not work and it's based on the economic interests of the peasantry and the way that they're integrated into a mode of production. Well, I think that would be a good argument. Yeah, is or... it just this is a summary though, right? Like this is this is this is wrapping up the book. It's not the introducing the theory. Let's do the last one. Anybody have a problem with this one? The self-emancipation of the working class requires a working class to lay its hands collectively on the means of production. This does not mean state ownership, which is a legal, merely a legal form. Without democratic republicanism, the legal form of state ownership means private ownership by state bureaucrats. It means the working class collectively decides how the means of production are used. Anybody have any problems with that? What is to ensure that a democratic republic stays democratic and doesn't just become a bastardization of itself? It just becomes about bureaucrats holding on to this as like a as a class as a political class or whatever you know what i mean well sophia the answer would be some sort of democratic republicanism and how thoroughly democratically republicanly those institutions are would be the only ostensible guarantor so one would have to take those forms very seriously so you have to be like extra extra sure that you're democratic when you're doing this thing you know that's his answer you know, frankly, like there's an absent discussion here where I don't know, even like Kautsky and like some of the other like social Democrats were only interested in like nationalizing the commanding heights and were pretty like fine with leaving a bunch of like small private property holdings and retaining some market relations just so that they didn't replace everything with a monolithic a state monopoly. Because of a sort of libertarian skepticism of state ownership of everything. And again, here it says, this does not mean state ownership of the means of production. So without democratic republicanism, the legal form of state ownership means this by state bureaucrats. But like with, you know, democratic republicanism, he seems to endorse state ownership in a way that seems fairly centralized, but it wouldn't count as a state, but it sounds like it. It feels like he's doing like a bunch of like a, a more sneaky version of the kind of like wordplay that like Marxists can do. That's like makes love anarchists and a lot of non like non converts, if you will, kind of uneasy, you know. So like, how can we elaborate this in a way that eases these concerns and also doesn't just try to like replace it with more sneaky language? Like, it, you know, maybe like the higher like enchilons of government, kind of like cy cybersyn or like cybernetics or whatever, is just like going to intervene in local affairs if there's like pain signals. Can I just 
bring up the what he says about the Democratic Republic, because I, I think this is useful information for this discussion. He says, uh, the only form through which the working class can take political power and lay collective hands on the means of production is the Democratic Republic. This does not mean rule of law, parliamentary constitutionalism, to which it is in fact opposed. It means a regime in which, in addition to the political liberties partially provided by the rule of law, constitutionalism, freedom of speech, assembly, association, movement, etc., and an extension of these liberties, all public officials are elected and recallable. There is universal military training and service and the right to bear arms and political rights in the armed forces, generalized trial by jury, freedom of information, and so on. In particular, democratic republicanism implies that what has to be decided centrally for effective common action should be decided centrally, but what that what does not have to be decided centrally should be decided locally or sectorally. Real timetables, for example. Self-government of the localities, not Bonapartist centralism, but equally not constitutional federalism, which hands the ultimate power to the lawyers and turns the rights of the youths of the Federation into a form of private property. And he goes on to say, like, yeah, without the principles of democratic republicanism, there is precisely private ownership by individuals or groups of information, of institutional powers, and of political careers. That is the meaning of the bureaucracies of the former socialist countries, of the trade unions, of the socialist and communist parties, and of Trotskyist sects. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when I said earlier that like I didn't have a problem with the statement, it was with that background information in mind. And I think that that would overlap a lot with what you were saying about like cybersyn like you could see yeah. something like cybersyn figuring yeah, yeah. into that kind of situation i literally in my book wrote down stafford beer beside that paragraph well stafford yeah. beer is, is one of the only theorists that has like developed a positive option or like you know proposal for this <laughs> and the way it's stated here is a bit more avoidant you know what i mean like sure. of course like this is the hope it's just it's not it's not specified like what his alternative is and we can fill it in with stafford beer essentially but hopefully I'd yeah say, well yeah right I, I i don't think it totally solves all this all the skepticism but like it is in like a big way at least for like come on like you know nuclear power plants or you know things that like really do you really don't want to leave up to workers control totally like th there are like some big common resources that would fall under the means of production almost unambiguously, unless you're crazy, even for super, like some anarchists, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. When I debate these ideas with anarchists, I actually go to like nuclear power plants and, and I'd be like, look, like if you want to like throw a fuss and not like work your job at the nuclear power plant, like tough shit, because if you don't like that shit could kill a lot of people, you know, like that there's some things like, you know, it can't just be like decentralized all good times for every every little piece of, of infrastructure, you know? There has to be something at some level. And I guess what's fudged over here is, you know, well, I mean, and he, he nods towards it, you know, how much of things ha has to be decided on that level? You know, like, this is the thing where I was saying like, oh, okay, all public officials are elected and recallable. Like there are existing countries with bourgeois constitutions where that is like a thing that exists and happens. You can recall representatives in Arizona, technically, can't you? I think so, yeah. It's happened in Canada within my lifetime that people have been recalled. There was a recall drive for the infamous Sheriff Joe Pyle. Right. But I think that's fine. Like, you know, we should have that. 
Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, just <laughs> saying, it, yeah. it's not a, it's not necessarily a radical break with the existing order uh, at that level. I mean, but you have to keep some elements. I mean, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's, it's not, it's not that extreme. Yeah. Yeah. I think the um, key thing is the uh, armed forces bit. I think is like yes. the linchpin of all that. Yes. Freedom of information, I feel like, is a thing that to a much greater extent existed in Canada when I was a child and became progressively er eroded over the intervening decades. Certainly doesn't exist in the United States in any, any reasonable form because of the national security reasons. I think, like, again, it's a thing that exists in some degree in many countries around the world, but it's a varying degree. I think there's definitely some limits to how people can decide how to use them at some point like i think you can decide like what you know there could be like public policy of like oh we want to expand like recreation buildings but at some point i think you need to like use some algorithms to optimize how your means of production are going to be used like i don't think we could just like decide how we're going to use these i don't think like we, should... we could just vote how, like how we're going to use the lathe yeah yeah we should we should use the lathe only on only on steel and metal items. Uh, we should report on that. I think also we should use um, maybe you know tea leaves for planning purposes. Oh. You know that's it's a complex system. As long as, long as every one of the workers contributes one leaf, then it's it. then it's democratic. <laughs> Uh, and you know, Navier, the Navier Stokes equations haven't been solved yet. So, like, we, we how could we do better than the tea leaves? That's what I say to you. <laughs> well, but, but, like, honestly speaking, though, like, you know, there is like the, the beer stuff that you could point to. You know, you could at least entertain the ideas that Cockshot brings up about this this question, and then like. I forget where it was, but I know in Eastern Europe, there was a place where like they had like an aborted re revolution. And part of the revolution was they were trying to come up with a decision making process that like integrated the different sectoral interests of producers, consumers, and was it check? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So like that speaks to me as like a more like concrete and informed understanding of like what this might mean given that yeah like if it's just oh uh, all power to the factories then that's going to lead to a lot of of issues right yeah, yeah. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, and Swampside Chats. <laughs>